Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have an awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Jessica, who you have met before in one of our SciComm September Reflection episodes. She is a brain cancer researcher and she's here to go a bit more in depth today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jessica. Thanks very much for having me. It's already a pleasure. First question, hopefully not too much of a curly one. What is your job? So my job is that I'm a brain cancer research scientist. So I work in the lab and my job basically involves looking for better treatments for kids that have brain cancer. That's an incredibly important job. What sort of things do you actually do every day? So one of the things that I really love about my job is that every day is different. So I'm never doing the same thing day in, day out. One of the things that I do most often in the lab is I actually grow cancer cells. So when a child has surgery to remove their brain tumor, sometimes if there's enough to spare, our lab receives a little piece of that tumor and we grow those cancer cells in a dish in the lab. And then what we can do is we can do a lot of different testing on them. We can test the genetics. We can test what kind of treatments that particular cancer might respond to. And we can use those results to both make new cancer models that we can share with colleagues around the world and also to kind of personalize the medicine, personalize the results and the treatments that these kids with cancer will get. Because our lab is based in the hospital, that's one of the best things that we can do. Some of the other things that I do at work, I test new treatments. So if we find a new drug that might be effective against a particular type of childhood brain cancer, we'll test that in the lab to see if it kills the cancer cells. We have a drug screening robot that I use quite a lot where we can test uh, hundreds of different drugs at a time to see what will work against a particular tumour. How common is childhood brain cancer? Is it something that happens regularly or is it like relatively rare? So thankfully, childhood brain cancer is a very rare disease. So not many kids are going to be diagnosed with it. But the problem is that those kids who do get diagnosed with brain cancer, it can be incredibly damaging. So the survival rate for the most common type of cancer called medulloblastoma, which is the one I work on, it's about 60%. So about 60% of kids that get medulloblastoma will survive. But for those kids who do survive, they also end up with really bad long-term side effects from the treatment. And so that's another one of the goals of the research I do is to develop treatments that are less damaging to their poor little brains. And then for some kinds of childhood brain cancer, there's a particularly bad one called diffuse midline glioma. That actually has a 0% survival rate. A child diagnosed with that cancer won't survive. And so we need to find more effective treatments for those cancers to help out those kids and the families. Definitely. That was a very grim statistic just there. I'm glad it's rare. Yeah, it is very sad. Childhood brain cancer actually kills more Australian children than any other disease. And that's not a statistic that a lot of people know. So behind uh, like congenital things, so health issues that a child is born with, 
brain cancer actually kills more kids than anything else. Wow, that is not something I was expecting. Is there something that's different about brain cancer? Yeah, so brain cancer is different because it's quite hard to treat. So for kids, other kids' cancers like leukemia, we've made huge advances in the last 30 years. For kids' brain cancers, none. The problem with brain cancer is that the brain is a protected area and there's this thing called the blood-brain barrier which stops basically anything nasty from getting into your brain, anything that shouldn't be there from getting in. Unfortunately, what it also does is it stops chemotherapy from getting in. So the usual treatments we would have for cancers just don't work a lot of the time on brain cancer. And that's one of the reasons it's so challenging to treat, both in kids but also in adults. Yeah, I mean, obviously the blood-brain barrier is an incredibly good thing and we're grateful for it 90% of the time. But what sort of treatments can you sort of like fall back on then if you can't use, I guess, more common things like chemo? So radiation therapy is a big one. That's what's used most to treat kids and surgery, of course. So one of the kind of branches of my research is looking at ways that we can make radiation therapy more effective. And so what we can do is we can use small molecule drugs. So these are created by very clever people in chemistry who kind of take existing drugs and modify the structure slightly so that they still do the same job, but they're able to cross the blood-brain barrier. And by combining these drugs with radiation therapy, we can make the cells, the brain cancer cells, more susceptible to the radiotherapy. So we can kill more of the cancer cells and hopefully damage less of that healthy brain around it at the same time. So we can kill two birds with one stone. And that's basically what my research looks at. That's fantastic. It makes a lot of sense. Weaken the dodgy cells and then obviously you'll be able to hopefully use lower treatments or more targeted treatments. That's exciting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's it's a job that I really enjoyed doing because everything that we discover in the lab can be taken downstairs to the clinic straight away and can help a child with cancer. It makes the science extra rewarding and I really enjoy it. There would be something cool about coming up with an idea and then being able to actually see if it works fairly quickly. That's very exciting. So you mentioned a drug screening robot. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that sounds cool. Yeah, it is. It's one of the cooler pieces of kit that I get to play with in the lab. And what it does is basically, usually we have to pipette, so to move small amounts of liquid between one jar and another. Basically, it just does tiny, tiny volumes, like nanoliter volumes, thousands of times over, really, really quickly. So instead of it taking us days to test 100 drugs, we can do it very, very quickly. That's awesome. I love this robot. Not only is it like helping speed up science, but it's also like surely that's better for your thumb, not having to do the repetitive strain stuff. Oh, definitely. It has saved a lot of people, a lot of physio. How often are new drugs like coming up that you could try out? Like, is it very common that there'll be something new or is it kind of like a rare and exciting occasion where something that could be trialed comes out? It's actually not that rare at all. Surprisingly, hardly any drugs that are used for adult cancer have been tested in kids' cancers. 
And that's not just brain cancers, that's leukemias, sarcomas, all sorts of things. And the reason for that is that kids' cancer is rare, which means it isn't as profitable as, say, making a breast cancer drug. So there's actually a huge amount of cancer drugs that have been made for things like breast cancer, melanoma, that we know work against cancer but just haven't been tried in childhood cancers. So part of what our drug screening robot does is we test those things that have already been approved. And then there's other things like headache drugs, like things for migraines and epilepsy that we know get into the brain because they were designed that way, but they've never been tested against cancers. And sometimes if they are used together in combinations that we would think of as odd, they actually work really well. And so that's the beauty of testing out some of these drugs that already exist, is that we can often find things that we never would have thought would have worked that do actually work against childhood cancer. The only caveat there is that drug screening only gets you so far. Cells, cancer cells growing in a dish, a good first check, but they don't actually represent the complexity of a tumour growing inside somebody. And so a lot of the results that we get with the drug screening robot are actually false positives and they don't turn out to lead anywhere. So that's why it's really important that after we get a hit with a drug screening robot, we don't just go straight to testing that drug in kids. We actually have to go through a lot more steps before we can actually give a drug to a child. So we test it in animals and really importantly, we test it in combination with the usual radiotherapy or the usual chemotherapy that that child would be getting because we want to make sure that those drugs work well together. There's no point giving something brand new that is actually going to work against their chemo or work against their actual radiotherapy treatment. So those kind of tests are really important to do as well. So it's important not to get too excited too quickly just because, I mean, it's a good, obviously, first start if you get a little positive, but not then leaping to conclusions that things are going to this is going to solve the world's problems. Oh, definitely. It's like half of the headlines you see in the news that there's this new breakthrough drug that has cured cancer. And often if you go and look up the study that the newspaper article is about, this drug cured cancer in a dish or this drug cured cancer in mice. But unfortunately, that rarely actually translates to that drug cured cancer in a person. There's a lot of extra work that has to be done to get from the dish to the animal to the person. But unfortunately, that doesn't make quite as good headlines. No, unfortunately not. That's one of the reasons why things like Psychom September are so important. Yes, you are very, very right. These are opportunities to practice communicating the complexities of science and particularly medical research, which is a very hot topic for a lot of people. I know you mentioned that every day is a bit different, but are you able to talk us through some of your average days that you have at work? Okay, so an average day for me, I usually come in in the morning and one of the first things I do is to feed my brain cancer cells. So these are growing in a dish and they're actually quite tricky to grow. They need a lot of things and a lot of loving care to keep them happy. So they get fed with a lot of growth factors, a lot of proteins like we would eat in our diet and also quite a lot of sugar. They love sugar. And so after I've fed those, then I will usually get started on whatever other experiments I have going for the day. That might be having a look at some cells under the microscope to see how they've grown after they've been treated with different drugs. That might be 
going to use the radiotherapy machine to treat some cells with radiotherapy in combination with some of the drugs that we're looking at. Or it might be sitting down at the computer to analyse some imaging. So I do MRI imaging, so that's magnetic resonance imaging, and we have to do a lot of image analysis on that, and that's one of the only things I'm sat at my computer for. That's a lot of different things. I didn't realise that brain cells love sugar. I don't know why I didn't know that. Yeah, a lot of cancer cells grow in a media that contains quite a high proportion of sugar. Which bit of this day-to-day work is your favourite? Like what helps you get up and get into the lab and get going? I really love imaging. It's one of the reasons that I got into kind of neuroscience work in the first place is that I find it incredibly fascinating to be able to see what's going on inside the brain. So one of the experiments I'm doing at the moment is we're looking at the effect of radiotherapy on the brain. And so I get to look at MRI images and you actually get to see how the brain has grown compared to a non-radiotherapy treated brain. And I just find that incredible that we can use this technology to look inside the brain. And it's similar with cells, getting to look at cancer cells under the microscope to watch them divide, using fluorescence to look at all different parts of the, the cells. I just find that really incredible. I'm not usually a very visual person, like I'm awful at art, but I really enjoy the imaging aspect of the lab and the science that I do. That's so cool because you can sort of like you're getting this window into something that for most of us is so secret. Like what the brain actually looks like is, you know, we sort of think of it as this like generic gray gloopy blob, but yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I found it really fascinating and that was definitely one of the things that got me into medical research in the first place was learning about medical imaging. How have you ended up in this job? Like what was your path from high school to where you are now? Was this the plan that young Jessica always had? Definitely not. Although my family did always think that I would probably go into medicine because I loved to wrap my little brother up in bandages. And I always used to read my mum's first aid textbooks for fun. So I was always interested in kind of health and disease, but didn't become a doctor, not a medical doctor anyway. So what I did is in high school, I never actually studied biology, which is kind of funny now I look back on it because I'm a biologist, but I didn't like the idea of having to study plants and animals and things like that. I just wanted to know about humans human disease and how it worked. But towards the end of high school, I was really burnt out and I was sick of it. And I didn't want to go to university at all. I was actually looking at becoming a paramedic. That way I could do kind of medical related things with on the job training and not actually have to, you know, go back and do more study. But in the end, I decided to go to university. One of my friends was doing biomedical science at Newcastle Uni and I decided, oh, that sounds pretty cool. It would be good to have someone I know doing the same degree and so I decided to do that and haven't looked back since. So that was my undergrad degree, biomedical science. I also did uh, a diploma in languages in Japanese alongside it and I kind of didn't really know what you could actually do with that degree. At least at Newcastle University, it's kind of a stepping stone for 
other kind of careers. So a lot of the people that do biomedical science end up going into medicine, pharmacy, veterinary science, and I knew about those pathways. But what I didn't know was anything about research. I kind of didn't really know that it existed. And it wasn't until one of my lecturers, Dr. Chris Deus, he said that anybody who's interested in doing research, anyone who's interested in the content of these lectures, should come to my lab and you know volunteer and find out what it's all about. And I thought that was a great idea. I was like, oh, I didn't even know this existed. So thanks to that opportunity where I did some really cool work on the neuroscience of addiction, I decided that I really enjoyed research. And so it was basically just kind of by accident I fell into it. And then to kind of to get into research as a full-time career, I decided to do a master's and a PhD to kind of further that. What did you do your PhD in? So I did my PhD in oncology, so that's cancer research. And I studied using MRI imaging to be able to detect cancer that's spread to the brain. So, for example, if someone has breast cancer and it spreads around their body and spreads to their brain, what my PhD was was basically at the moment we can't detect that cancer until it's basically too big to be treated. So I was trying to develop better imaging methods so that we could detect it earlier and hopefully help people get treated earlier. That's awesome. You did, however, mention a bit earlier the neuroscience of addiction. Is there anything you can share about like some fun facts or something about that? Because that is a very cool title. Yeah, so I worked in the lab of Professor Chris Deus at the University of Newcastle, and he studies addiction to a number of different substances, things like nicotine, cocaine, even food in some cases. And what we did was we basically had a look at the brains of animals that became addicted to these substances versus the ones that didn't. So we could kind of understand what exactly it was that made some mice become addicted and some not. And so looking at the biology of the reward circuits in the brain, it was really interesting work. And it was that that got me hooked on how the brain works and research in general. When did you come across the imaging side of things? When did that spark get lit? The imaging side of things, I guess, it was always there through my undergrad. We learned a lot about imaging. But it wasn't until I went and did my master's in neuroscience that brain imaging, I learned a lot more about it. One of the techniques I learned about, which I find really, really interesting, is called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. And basically what they do is they put you inside an MRI scanner. And while you're doing different tasks, different areas of your brain that are being used to do those tasks light up. They won't actually light up but the blood flow to your brain will increase. And because your blood has iron in it, which is magnetic, we can actually measure that increased blood flow in the brain. So we can see what areas of the brain are working on different techniques. And I just thought that was so cool. And I was really interested in imaging from there on. I knew you could like watch the brain light up, for want of a better term, but I didn't realise that it's because blood is magnetic. That's cool. I didn't know that. 
That's a highly simplified version of it. It has a lot to do about how the magnetism of the iron in your blood, the hemoglobin changes when it's got oxygen versus no oxygen. I can't remember all of the biology because it was quite a while ago, but I'm sure there are other experts out there who can remind me of how that went. And go into some of the details. That's very cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. What advice would you give to a young person who's considering a career in something like this? Like, yeah, have you got any wisdom that you'd pass on, say, to young Jessica or Jessica at uni? I would say that to get a feel for research, you should definitely try and become involved in research. There's so many labs out there who would love for someone to come along and do some work in their lab. It can be intimidating to go up to somebody, you know, a scary professor, and ask if you can do some work experience, but they'll very rarely say no. And often you'll get an idea straight away of whether you're going to love it or hate it. Another piece of advice is that you should definitely, definitely learn bioinformatics. That is currently the growth area of where we need researchers. So if you can learn those skills now, you will be very highly placed for future jobs. And so what bioinformatics is, is it's data science for medical research, essentially. So a lot of the research that we do, especially in genetics, creates huge amounts of data that people like me without computer science skills can't analyze. And so we rely on other people to do that analysis for us. The problem is, at the moment, there's about 100 researchers, medical like lab-based researchers for every bioinformatics person. And so their skills are very highly in demand. And I can only see that field getting bigger and bigger. And so that would be a good piece of advice would be to make sure you learn at least the basic skills in bioinformatics. That's a fantastic little insight because, well, all fields are generating data faster than we can analyze it. The data sets are mind-blowingly huge. I mean, imagine the amount of data that you're swimming in would be quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. Some of the genetics work that we do, we can't even download the files onto our computers. They're huge. And same with some of the imaging work. Some of the imaging analysis, we have to use specialized computers to do that. So there's definitely potential in that area. Are there any problems that you can think of at the moment that if you had those skills, you'd be better set to be able to solve? Oh, that's a tough question. I think that the best thing about those skills is that they can be applied to anything. And so the world is kind of your oyster if you have bioinformatics skills. You can answer any kind of question in medical research because a lot of the data is already there and freely available in like public data sets. That's a really good point. There's a lot of things that you can play with for free, say as a student or if you're self-learning this kind of maths and stats. It's very cool. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything you wish the general public understood about your field? Is there, I mean, we've mentioned some of the myths and misconceptions that turn up in the media, but is there anything else that you'd sort of like to do a bit of myth busting on? I think the biggest thing that is an issue in our field that people don't know about is how badly medical research is funded. You would think that an area as important as 
kids with brain cancer would just have money thrown at it so that we could, you know, make life better for these kids. But that is definitely not the case and it's not the case in so many other completely deserving areas of medical research as well. It was a big surprise to my family and friends that once I had a PhD and I was, you know, a medical researcher, that I have to continue to scrounge for my salary every year. People don't realise that, for example, only 10% of the National Health and Medical Research Council grants, the the big ones in our field, only 10% are successful every year. And so there is so much deserving medical research into so many important diseases, things like cancer, things like heart disease, things like Alzheimer's disease, that is going undone because there simply isn't enough money around for it. And so I think it would be hugely beneficial if medical research was funded more highly, like it is in other countries, for example, Europe and the United States. I think there is a bit of an assumption that anyone who's for some reason working in a white lab coat is not only incredibly well paid, but there's just this list, this long list of people behind them who are willing to give them money to solve all the world's problems. And I think that's probably one of the greater misunderstandings in popular culture. Yeah. And if anything has become apparent over the last few years, it's that medical research is really, really important. Without it, we wouldn't have PCR tests to check if you've got COVID. We wouldn't have mRNA vaccines for COVID. And we wouldn't have any of the treatments that people will get in hospitals. People have obviously realised that this stuff is really, really important, but it hasn't translated yet to increased funding for medical research, which is a shame because if in the middle of a global pandemic we still can't get money for research, then when are we going to get it? That's a very tricky question. And I was thinking with the rapid antigen tests, like, yeah, it's cool. We've got them for COVID. And obviously that's very important and topical right now. But there's so many other viruses and illnesses that if you could have like a couple of those for different things and everyone could test for themselves at home, be fantastic instead of having to go in for a blood test and stuff. Man, more rat tests would be great. For everything. Yeah, exactly. Are there any myths or misconceptions about brain cancer specifically that are around or childhood cancers? I think, oh, I'm not sure about childhood cancers. Not so much. I think that a lot of people still think of childhood cancer as a death sentence. But thankfully, in most cases now, Thanks to medical research and thanks to improvements in medicine over the last 30 years, it's not. There's still work to be done, but for the most part, kids who have cancer will go on to live happy and healthy lives. One of the many reasons for funding medical research, because obviously that is a good thing. Yes, happy, healthy kids is definitely what we want to see more of. Is there anything else we haven't touched upon that you would like to share? I'd like to share one of my favorite one of my favorite things in neuroscience and in imaging that I think everyone should go and google if they haven't heard of it before because it is just so cool. It's something called the Brainbow mouse. So this is a mouse strain that's been genetically engineered so that different types of cells 
express different colored fluorescent proteins. And that means that when you look at the brain of this mouse under a microscope, it looks like a rainbow. You can see all of these different cell types fluorescing all different colors and the images are absolutely incredible. It does there's amazing research being done with it, but just the pictures are so cool. And it's something that just makes me happy about science. And I think everyone should Google it. And having just Googled it, it's amazing. It's not something that you may have ever thought of a brain looking like before. And you should also go and Google it because it's very, 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 very cool. And so pretty. So who said that there's no art in science? Oh, definitely. Fluorescence microscopy images, they have art competitions every year. And some people make some beautiful, beautiful artworks out of cancer cells, out of, you know, bits of hair. It's amazing. Definitely science can be arty as well. So how are these images taken? Because obviously like, it's not like the, the mouse has a, a clear skull and you can see the cells. Like, What is the technology that's used to get those images? So there's two different ways. The first one is kind of old school. Uh, where we take the brain out after the mouse has been euthanized and we cut it into really thin slices so we can look at it under the microscope. The brand new, really cool way of doing it is a technique called clarity, where we actually keep the whole brain intact and they use, I guess, some kind of really strong detergents to actually wash away the fat from the brain and leave behind everything else. And so the brain becomes clear. And that way you can take images of the entire brain all together so you can see how things are, like you can see spatially how things fit together without having to cut it into slices. And that's a really cool technique. That's genuinely mind-blowing. And you're sticking with the avid research, I guess, habit now of guests who always bring up the coolest things right at the very end. That's just amazing. You can see a whole brain all at once. Definitely something else to Google. Clearly. And we'll have to include maybe some images on social media for people because I think this might grab people's attention. Definitely. An image of the brainbow mouse is definitely attention grabbing. Doing so well. And with the brainbow mouse, which is B-R-A-I-N-B-O-W, it's like rainbow but with brain, we will have to wrap up. Do you have a shout out? Do you have someone who you think deserves lots of virtual high fives? It's just amazing. Yeah. So I've been really lucky to have three amazing female scientists as my supervisors, Professor Carolyn Mountford, Dr. Nicholas Simpson, and I'd like to shout out to them for being amazing mentors and role models. There is not enough women in science, and I've been lucky to have three incredible mentors. So huge shout outs to all three of them. That's amazing. And high five to all three because they have helped shape you and the amazing research that you do. And so that deserves a lot of high fives because that is not at all insignificant. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Jessica. It has been an absolute pleasure. We're all going to go away and Google the Brainbow Mouse and have a greater appreciation, not just for our brains, but also for brain cancer researchers. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee painting. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend. <laughs>